Chapter 9 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 1 Mount Everest. The Himalaya not only contained the loftiest peaks on the globe, but can boast at least 80 summits loftier than those of any other range. The Andes come next, but their highest point, at Concagua, is only 23,060 feet. In the huge mountain land which bounds India on the north, and which stretches as great a distance as from the English Channel to the Caspian, there are more than 80 peaks above 24,000 feet, some 20 above 26,000, and 6 above 27,000. Mount Everest, the highest, is, according to the latest measurements, 29,140 feet high. Its true character was not always recognized. At one time, Chimborazo in the Andes was thought to outsoar Himalay. In the middle of the last century, Kanchenjunga, which fills the eye of the traveler who looks north from Darjeeling, was believed to be the loftiest of the world's mountains. At that time, officers of the Indian government were conducting the great trigonometrical survey, during which they discovered a summit for which they could find no native name, in which they labeled Peak 15. In 1852, when the observations had been worked out, an official rushed breathlessly into the room of the surveyor general in Calcutta with the news that Peak 15 proved to be 29,002 feet high and was therefore the chief mountain in the world. As its native name was unknown, it was called after Sir George Everest, who had been in charge of the survey. The name is beautiful in itself and may well stand, though had the circumstances been otherwise, there would have been much said for the Tibetan name Chomolungmo, which means Goddess Mother of the Mountains. The ascent of Everest was a project which only slowly entered into men's minds. When the great peak was first discovered, Mountaineering was still in its infancy, and for a generation afterwards, climbers were preoccupied with the Alps. Then, mountaineers began to look farther afield. At first, the Caucasus and then the Andes were conquered, till some thirty years ago the ambitious began to turn their eyes to the Himalaya. Gradually, the limit of achievement on high snows was extended. On Trisul, Dr. Longstaff, in ten and a half hours, ascended from 70,450 feet to the summit of 23,360 feet. On Kamet, Mr. Charles Meade took coolies up to a camp of 23,600 feet. The Duke of the Abruzzi, after his ascent of Ruanzori, attacked with a splendidly equipped party K2, that icy lump in the Karakoram, the second highest of the world's mountains, and reached a height of 24,600 feet, which, till the year 1921, remained the world's record. In 1920, Dr. Kellis found that on reasonable snow, he could ascend at a rate of 600 feet an hour above 21,000 feet. It was inevitable that, when the Great War was over, lovers of high places should fix their thoughts on Everest. It had long been a dream of mountaineers. Lord Curzon, when Viceroy of India, had suggested the exploration of Everest to the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club. 
but there were political difficulties connected with the journey through Tibet or Nepal, and even a reconnaissance of the mountain proved impossible. Cecil Rowling, who fell at the Third Battle of Ypres as a brigadier general with the 21st Division, during his journey in 1904 to the headwaters of the Brahmaputra, saw for the first time, from a distance of 60 miles, the north side of Everest, and believed that it might be climbed. I well remember how, in the year before the war, he and I planned an expedition which was to cover two seasons and explore that northern side. In March 1919, Captain Noel urged the Royal Geographical Society to undertake the work, and Sir Francis' young husband, the president of the Society in the following year, in conjunction with the Alpine Club, entered into negotiations with the government of India. Permission was obtained from the Tibetan authorities, and in January 1921, a joint committee of the Royal Geographical Society and the Alpine Club proceeded to organize an expedition. There were many to ask what was the use of such an enterprise, which would be costly, difficult, and certainly dangerous. The answer is that it was of no earthly use, and that in that lay its supreme merit. The war had called forth the finest qualities of human nature, and with the advent of peace, there seemed a risk of the world slipping back into dull materialism. Men had begun to ask of everything its cash value, and to cherish, as if it were a virtue, a narrow utilitarian common sense. To embark upon something which had no material value was a vindication of the essential idealism of the human spirit. In Sir Francis Young Husband's words, quote, the sight of climbers struggling upwards to the supreme pinnacle would have taught men to lift their eyes to the hills, to raise them off the ground, and divert them, if only for a moment, to something pure and lofty and satisfying to that inner craving for the worthiest which all men have hidden in their souls. And when they see men thrown back at first, but returning again and again to the assault, till, with faltering footsteps and gasping breaths, they at last reach the summit, they will thrill with pride. They will no longer be obsessed with the thought of what mites they are in comparison with the mountain, how insignificant they are beside their material surroundings. They will have a proper pride in themselves and a well-grounded faith in the capacity of spirit to dominate material. These are almost the words of Theophile Gautier's defense of mountaineers. Quote, il sola volante protestant entre l'obstacle la vugle et il plante sur l'inaccessible le drapeau d'intelligence humaine. Unquote. If the climber wants a further statement of his creed, let it be that of Mr. Belloc when he first saw the Alps from the ridge of the Jura. Quote, Up there, the sky above and below them, the great peaks made communion between that homing, creeping part of me which loves vineyards and dances and a slow movement among pastures, and that other part which is only properly at home in heaven. These, the great Alps, seen thus, link one in some way to one's immortality. Nor is it possible to convey, or even to suggest, these few fifty miles and these few thousand feet there is something more. Let me put it thus, that from the height of the Weisenstein I saw, as it were, my religion, 
i mean humility the fear of death the terror of height or distance the glory of god the infinite potentiality of reception whence springs that divine thirst of the soul my aspiration also toward completion and my confidence in the dual destiny for i know that we laughers have a gross cousinship with the most high and it is this constant and perpetual quarrel which feeds the spring of merriment in the soul of a sane man since i could now see such a wonder and it could work such things in my mind therefore some day i should be part of it that is what i feel that is also which leads some men to climb mountain tops but not me for i am afraid of slipping down and now for the great mountain itself first of all it is a rock peak all the upper part is a great pyramid of stone with three main reeds the west the southwest and the northeast it lies exactly on the frontier between tibet and nepal and from the nepalese side and the plains of india it is hard to get a good view of it for only a wedge of white is seen peeping between and over other peaks on the tibetan side however it stands clear and its preeminence over its neighbors is patent now in all attacks upon a great peak the first question is how to get to it a problem most difficult in the case of other himalayan summits like k2 and of peaks like mount mckinley in alaska and mount robson in canada it is not only the question of the climbers getting there but of transporting the food and tents and accessories required by a well-equipped expedition had the only route to everest lain through the deep-cut gorges of nepal the transport problem might have been insuperable but here came in the value of tibet which is a high plateau averaging twelve or thirteen thousand feet it was possible to take a large party with baggage animals up through the passes of Sikkim to the Camp of Zong, and then westward along the north side of the range to a base camp at Tingridzong, due north of the mountain. Everest itself would be forty or fifty miles from such a base camp, but there was a clear road to it by the upper glens and glaciers of the Arun, which flows north and east before it turns south and cuts its way through the Himalayan wall the problem of access to the base was therefore not a hard one the problem of the ascent was twofold part physiological part physical could human beings survive at an altitude of twenty nine thousand feet human beings who were forced to carry loads and to move their limbs aviators of course had risen to greater heights but they had not been compelled to exert themselves could a man in action support life in that rarefied air above twenty thousand feet a cubic foot of air contains less than half the oxygen which it holds at sea level as the working of the body depends upon the oxygen supplied through the lungs this fact was bound to lessen enormously man's physical energy on the other hand it had been found that the human frame could adapt itself to great altitudes by increasing the number of red blood corpuscles. Dr. Kellis had been able to climb 600 feet an hour above 21,000 feet, and Mr. Mead had camped in comparative comfort at 23,600 feet. Still, the highest altitude yet reached had been only 24,600 feet, and no one could say what difference the extra 4,500 feet might make. 
Clearly, before final climbing began, it would be necessary to acclimatize the party. In the last resort, oxygen might be artificially supplied to the climbers. The physiological problem was of the kind which could only be solved in practice. The second was the physical. A man might live and even move slowly above, say, 26,000 feet, but it was quite certain that no human being would be capable of the severe exertions required by difficult climbing. If the last stage of Everest proved to be like the last stages of many Himalayan mountains, then the thing was strictly impossible. The hope was that, on the Tibetan side, the Aritz might be easy-going. It all depended upon finding an easy route and being able to make an ultimate camp at some point like 26,000 feet. There was good hope that the first might be possible, judging from Rawlingson's survey at a distance of 60 miles and the known geographical features of the Tibetan side of the range. The other physical difficulties would be the gigantic scale of Himalayan obstacles, the hugeness of the ice fields and glaciers, the immensity of the rock falls and avalanches. Also, at a great height, there would be the bitter cold to lower vitality and the likelihood of violent winds. Much would depend on the weather, which was still an unknown quantity. Indeed, all the physical factors were in the region of speculation. Only a reconnaissance could determine them. It might be that the expedition would have to turn back at once, confessing its task impossible. General Bruce, who was the chief living authority on Himalayan traveling, was unable to accompany the party, so Colonel Howard Bury was selected as leader. An elaborate scientific equipment was prepared, and steps were taken to get the full scientific value out of the journey. But the primary object was mountaineering. First a reconnaissance, and then, if fortune favored, an effort to reach the summit. The four climbers chosen were Mr. Harold Rayburn, who, in 1920, had done good work on the spurs of Kanchenjunga, Dr. Kellis, who had reached 23,400 feet on Kemet, and two younger men, Mr. George Lee Mallory and Mr. Bullock, distinguished members of the Alpine Club, who had been together at Winchester. In India, they were to be joined by Major Morshead and Major Wheeler of the Indian Survey. Early in May 1921, the party assembled at Darjeeling. The start from Darjeeling was on 18th of May. The first stage through Sikkim and by way of Chumbi Valley to the Tibetan Plateau was over familiar ground, which need not be described. There was a good deal of trouble with the mules, which had been badly chosen, but no incident of importance happened till Dochen was reached, the point where their road left the main road to Lhasa. At Kampadzong, Dr. Kellis died suddenly from heart failure an irreparable loss to the expedition, for he had been one of the mountaineers from whom most was looked for, and he was the only member of the party qualified by his medical knowledge to carry out experiments in oxygen and blood pressure. Then, too, Mr. Rayburn fell sick and had to return to Sikkim. The expedition made its way almost due west behind the main chain of the Himalaya until one evening its members saw, almost due south of them, a beautiful peak which was, apparently, very high. The natives called it Jomo Uri, which means the goddess of the turquoise peak, and from observations next morning, it was clear that it was Everest. 
they passed some wonderful monasteries perching on the face of the perpendicular crags and eventually on the nineteenth of june they reached tingri dzong after a month's travelling from darjeeling this was the spot they had decided upon for their base camp the obvious route to everest seemed to be by way of the rongbuk valley where the great rongbuk glacier flowed from its northern face there accordingly the two climbers mr mallory and mr bullock established themselves the preliminary reconnaissance however proved to be a somewhat intricate matter it was soon plain that there were no easy approaches from the west so colonel howard beery moved his headquarters to karta on the east side close to the Aran. That river, which there is about one hundred yards wide, a little further down enters great gorges in which, within a course of twenty miles, it drops from twelve thousand feet to seven thousand five hundred feet, or over two hundred feet in a mile, a far more wonderful spectacle than anything on the Brahmaputra. On the 2nd of August, Mr. Mallory and Mr. Bullock started their exploration of the eastern approaches to the mountain. This was no easy business, for the valleys were separated by ridges, the lowest point of which was higher than any mountain in Europe, and every route had to be explored personally, for no information could be had from the natives. The two main valleys running down on the east side of Everest are the Karta and further south the Kama. The latter valley was first explored, and it was found that it ended under the precipitous eastern face of the mountain, and that there was no way from it of reaching the northeast ridge. It was a marvelous valley for scenery, but for mountaineering impracticable. A move was accordingly made to the Karta Valley to the north. Mr. Mallory and Mr. Bullock proceeded up this till they reached the glacier of the Karta River, and at last found a valley which seemed to lead them straight to the northeast ridge. It was now, however, early August. The monsoon was blowing, and everywhere there was deep, soft, fresh snow. They returned accordingly to the camp at Carta to wait till weather conditions became better. What was called the Advance Base Camp was established in the Carta Valley at a height of 17,350 feet, in a grassy hollow well sheltered from the wind and amid a glory of alpine flowers. Meantime, Mr. Mallory and Mr. Bullock spent their time in carrying wood and stores to a camp higher up the valley. This was finally established at a height of some 20,000 feet well up the Karta Glacier. At the glacier head was a pass called the Lachpala, or Windy Gap, and the next step was to form a camp there at a height of 22,350 feet. It was in this neighborhood that the tracks, probably of a wolf, were found, which the coolies attributed to the wild men of the snows. From the Lac Pala, the mountaineers were now looking straight at Everest, and at last were able to unriddle its tangled topography. The attention of the readers is called to the map. It will be seen that the great Rongbuk Glacier, which descends from the western side of the northern face, receives, as a feeder, the east Rongbuk Glacier. The entrance to the latter is so small that Mr. Mallory and Mr. Bullock had failed to notice it in their exploration of the main glacier. This lesser Rongbuk Glacier ends on the eastern part of the northern face of the mountains, and between its head and that of the main glacier is the pass called the Changla, or North Goal. 
From the Lakpala, one looks into the East Rongbuk Glacier with the North Coal straight in front. If the North Coal could be attained, it seemed to the mountaineers to be possible by working up the easy northern face to attain the northeast ridge at a point above the main difficulties. The camp on the Lakpala was not a comfortable place, with a howling wind, 34 degrees of frost, and little stuffy tents which gave dubious protection and inevitable headaches. It was decided that the two expert alpine climbers, with a few picked coolies, should alone attempt the North Pole, and if fortune favored, prospect the farther route, while the others returned to the 20,000 feet camp. We are now concerned with the doings only of Mr. Mallory and Mr. Bullock, who were to attempt the North Pole. In the week since their arrival in the neighborhood of Everest, they had been studying its contours with the eyes of trained mountaineers. They saw that it was a great rock mass, quote, coated often with a thin layer of white powder, which is blown about its sides and bearing perennial snow only on the gentler ledges and on several wide faces less steep than the rest. They saw that from the point of the northeast shoulder, a more or less broad arete fell northward to the snow col called the Changla. If they could reach that snow col, the road to the northeast ridge looked reasonably simple. They had seen that the Changla would be very difficult of attainment from the Rongbuk Glacier, and that was why they had turned their minds to an eastern approach. Here is their conclusion in Mr. Mallory's words reached about the third week in July. Quote, if ever the mountain were to be climbed, the way would not lie along the whole length of any one of its colossal ridges. Progress could only be made along comparatively easy ground, and anything like a prolonged sharp crest or a series of towers would inevitably bar the way, simply by the time it would require to overcome such obstacles. But the North Arete, coming down to a gap between Everest and the North Peak, Changsti, is not of this character. From the horizontal structure of the mountain, there is no excrescence of rock pinnacles in this part, and the steep walls of rock which run across the north face are merged with it before they reach this part, which is comparatively smooth and continuous, a bluntly rounded edge. The great question before us now was to be one of access. Could the North Pole be reached from the east, and how could we attain this point? We have seen the two climbers as far on their journey as the Lakpala, looking over the east Rongbuk Glacier to the North Coal. The chief difficulty, it was soon evident, would be the wall under the coal, which must be over 500 feet high and appeared to be very steep. On the morning of the 23rd of September, Mr. Mallory, Mr. Bullock, and Mr. Wheeler started from the camp on the Lac Pabla with ten coolies, some of whom were mountain-sick and all of whom were affected by the height. They started late and resolved to make an easy day, pitching their tents that night in the open snow under the North Gull. They had looked for a sheltered camp, but the place proved to be a temple of the winds, and no one that night had much sleep. Next morning, the 24th, a few hours after sunrise, they began to climb the slopes under the wall and found them easier than they had feared. By 11.30, the party was on the coal. Only three coolies had accompanied them, two of whom were already very tired. 
of the three sahibs only mr mallory was in anything like good condition the place was scourged by icy blasts and frequently in a whirl of powdery snow but there could be no doubt that the arete in front of them was accessible in that gale however they dare not attempt it so they struggled back to their camp below the wall next morning the twenty fifth a council of war was held it was clear that they must either go on or go back in their plan they had dreamed of making a camp at twenty six thousand feet but that was now out of the question it was too late in the season the weather was too bad and the party was too weak there was nothing for it but to return and accordingly they struggled over the lachpala back to the carta valley and the road to england the reconnaissance of nineteen twenty one had established certain facts of the first importance the first was as to the proper season for the attempt the rainfall in the himalaya that year was abnormal and the monsoon began and finished later than usual but it was clear that between its end and the coming of winter there was not sufficient time to give climbers a chance of good weather the next attempt must obviously be made before the coming of the monsoon that is in may or june the second fact established was the best way of attempting the summit the only feasible route lay from the changla up the subsidiary ridge to the shoulder of the northeast arete the distance from the changla to the top was not more than two miles and the rise not more than six thousand feet so far as the climbers on the pass could judge and their conclusion was supported by numerous photographs from other points there seemed to be no very great difficulties on this route in the shape of steep rocks it looked as if it might be practicable to find a site for a camp at about twenty six thousand feet by this route the northeast arete would be reached at about twenty eight thousand feet the thousand feet from that point to the summit looked slightly more difficult and appeared to possess certain rock towers which however might be circumvented the actual top seemed to be a cap of snow with a steep blunt edge on the side of the ridge the transport question must always be difficult the thousand feet from the east rongbuk glacier to the changla half of which was very steep might give trouble to laden coolies especially earlier in the season when the ice was uncovered by snow an advanced base camp on the Chengla would of course be essential if a high camp were to be made at twenty six thousand feet but the physical problem might be regarded as solved at any rate as far as the shoulder of the northeast arete on the physiological question little light had been thrown the climbers in september nineteen twenty one were all more or less tired from spending long periods in high camps and could not be regarded as at the top of their form yet in the cases of most members of the party the process of acclimatization had been rapid and mr mallory on the changla was remarkably fit what would happen however at the higher altitudes the effect of these upon the human body had not been decided the conclusion from the year's work was that while no insuperable difficulty had been proved in the problem yet for success there must be a combination of happy chances in the shape of weather the condition of the snow the endurance of the transport coolies and the bodily fitness of the climbers 
a second attempt would be justified but it could not be regarded with anything like confidence the enterprise was seriously and responsibly envisioned and no better expression of the spirit of those who undertook it can be found than in mr mallory's own words Quote, it might be possible for two men to struggle somehow to the summit disregarding every other consideration it is a different matter to climb the mountain as mountaineers would have climbed it principles time-honored in the alpine club must of course be respected in the ascent of mount everest the party must keep a margin of safety it is not to be a mad enterprise rashly pushed on regardless of danger the ill-considered acceptance of any and every risk has no part in the essence of persevering courage a mountaineering enterprise may keep sanity and sound judgment and remain an adventure and of all the principles to which we hold the first is that of mutual help what is to be done for a man who is sick or abnormally exhausted at these high altitudes his companions must see to it that he is taken down at the first opportunity and with an adequate escort and the obligation is the same whether he be sahib or coolie if we ask a man to carry our loads up the mountain we must care for his welfare at need End of chapter 9, part 1